Hi, welcome to Offscript. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Today on the show, we're taking a look at the new Ryan Rian Johnson film, excuse me, Knives Out, a very fun whodunit. We caught an advanced screening. We are excited to tell you what we thought. We're also going to look at Disney's Frozen 2. Yes, the blockbuster sequel to the blockbuster hit. Uh, lots of kids in the theaters, but I think we had both had a good time anyway. Uh, we're going to look at DC Films. There's some news following the success of Todd Phillips' Joker and uh, what DC wants to do with their larger franchise. We'll talk about that between our two reviews. And before we get to all of that, we need to go over the news. Speaking of Todd Phillips and Joker, Warner Brothers is exploring a sequel, which is a weird surprise because that definitely felt like a one-off picture. Andy, what do you know about this? Uh, so last week it was reported that a Joker sequel is in the works was in the works along with some other rumors that were that were actually debunked but yes todd phillips is working at least on a joker sequel it's very early it's just in talks and in developments there's no one attached no writers no uh joaquin phoenix isn't attached yet um but they are talking about it and when a movie makes a billion dollars it's hard not to say hey we should probably do another one of these yeah, I, I'm I'm in the same boat. They should probably do another one. I don't know how they do it, though. That's the problem. I think Phillips made it pretty clear, at least initially, that that was supposed to be a one-off. I don't think they had any intention of this being a kind of two-part thing uh, or, or multiple parts in the age of cinematic universes. I don't know what they could do to this character to keep him as vibrant as he was in the original film without changing him to something we don't like, right? Like... Uh, I yes. think the origin story is so great in the glass bottle that it resides in right now. As soon as you expand it and grow it, it may become something people don't like. Yes, I think you have a real challenge on where does the story go from here. Um, you know, generally the Joker is some sort of uh, like in the Dark Knight version. He's a criminal mastermind, but we don't really get that vibe from Arthur Fleck. So we don't really know what would be the next kind of logical step. The only thing I can think of is, uh, you know, step first act is him escaping from Arkham. Uh, but after that, I don't, I don't know where you go. Uh, but like any good sequel, the things you would have to do would be expand the universe, expand the character bring new challenges, probably introduce a couple of new characters as well. I think it can definitely be done, but it's definitely a challenge. Yeah, Joaquin Phoenix's Joker just does not strike me as the incredibly intelligent clown prince of crime that we're familiar with in most of the Batman series. Now, that's okay, because it's a reimagining, but I don't know how you carry that into a larger world. And whether or not Joaquin Phoenix actually wants to do it, that guy's usually pretty pretty leaning into indie film you know he doesn't do a whole lot of big budget kind of mainstream stuff so i, I don't know i think it's going to be tough to wrangle him in uh at the same time the payday would certainly be nice todd phillips had that deal worked out where he got a percentage of box office earnings so he he, he cleaned up like a cool 150 million or something off of joker so i'm sure they're both interested i i don't know how dc is going to sweeten the pot and write a story strong enough to keep people coming back for another film after whatever the second one would be so but yeah, yeah. I, i'm reminded i'm reminded a little bit of uh you know blade runner 2049 where you oh, you tragedy you, yeah well where you kept at least kept the indie small character driven film but you had you were able to play on a bigger stage because of the budget so it would need to go in in that direction and you know i think it can definitely be done you can find a story that that works but it's definitely easy for it to just fall into caricature as well 
Mm. And speaking of falling into caricature, our next story, Frozen 2, opens to a fiery $130 million in the U.S. and a record $358 million globally. In one weekend, a third of a billion dollars globally. That is insanity. The House of Mouse is not slowing down, and I guess it's no surprise Frozen 2 was such a hit. Andy, what do you think? Uh, yeah, the, the the blockbuster is back, and it's it's been a kind of a, a rough month uh, at the movies, uh, box office wise. Terminator Three or Terminator Dark Fate did poorly. Six, Do- yeah. uh, Doctor Sleep also d- didn't do real great, and so it's been a bit of a slump uh, this month. And Disney ha- has brought us out of that, and and of course. I mean, this we knew this property was going to be huge. It was a billion dollar, well, I think one of the first animated billion dollar films. And here we are again, that this is going to cross a billion dollars probably in, in the, within the month. Um, so it's a surprise to no one. And it's huge here and across the board, uh, particularly in China, which I, I think it may have had a limited release last time. Um, 50 million from China. So it's huge. It's huge in every country. It's huge across the world. And it's huge here at home as well. Yes, and $358 million is the biggest animated film opening of all time. Uh, the next runner-up after that is Incredibles 2 with $182 million. So, like, it it almost doubled what that was doing. It's not even close. Um, man, Disney cannot, cannot not put out a hit, I guess is what I'm trying to say. My God, it seems like they can do no wrong. They're invincible. And I know Frozen had... A huge following. Um, I'm, I'm still a little perplexed as to why, because I don't think the film is that strong, but apparently children do, and that's what matters. Uh, and I'm, I'm <laughs> exactly. curious to see if Frozen 2 leaves the same kind of legacy. Um, but our, we'll get to our review to it, about it in just a minute. Uh, the other kind of standouts from the weekend box office... Um, Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood with Tom Hanks as the late Fred Rogers came in at $13.1 million, so pretty far behind. Then Ford versus Ferrari behind that. And then after that, 21 Bridges uh, starring Chadwick Boseman came in at $9.1 million. Not great. Otherwise, Frozen 2 dominated the box office. I can't wait to see how Ryan Johnson's... Uh, Ryan Johnson? Oh, God. Why am I doing Ryan, this to myself? Ryan. Ryan I want to see how Knives Out does next week because we caught an advanced <laughs> screening. So we'll get we'll see how that turns out. Our last story, Apple delays the banker uh, after a sexual abuse claim against the subject's son comes out. The banker is an Apple Plus, Apple TV Plus series uh, starring Samuel L. Jackson and Michael B. Jordan. And now it's on hold due to a big, big scandal. Andy, what do you know about this? Uh, So last week, Apple um, decided to pull this film from its AFI uh, premiere. Uh, just last weekend, it's also decided to now also delay its release on their streaming service. It was supposed to come out December sixth, uh, the premiere, or and or in limited release, and then come out on streaming in January. Um, and it was also supposed to be a big uh, awards contender, a very socially conscious film. But then uh, these allegations by the subject's sons, uh, half sisters, came out uh, about sexual abuse, um, and so. Apple right a, went right acted very quickly sorry and um, scrubbed his name from because he was a was getting a producer credit they scrubbed his name from all of the, from the film and all the publicity and now they're stopping to kind of think of what they're gonna do next how they are gonna kind of release this film because they probably have to to not take a loss on it 
I realize I misspoke. This film does not star Michael B. Jordan. It stars Anthony Mackie. So let me just clarify that before I get past here. Uh, The Banker is based on the real-life story of Bernard Garrett Jr.'s father, Bernard Garrett Sr., and Joe Morris, who are two black men in Los Angeles who recruit a white man to front their growing real estate business uh, in a pre-civil rights uh, America. This is about six decades ago. That's the pitch. Two Two black men hire a white guy to front their their business. Uh, apparently the allegations were against Bernard Garrett Jr. who was played by Anthony Mackie in the film. Uh, that's 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 where our problems are, I think. Uh, this movie will see the light of day, surely, right? It's not like this just gets buried. It stars Samuel L. Jackson and Anthony Mackie, right? Right, exactly. Well, and, and they've made an investment. Uh, but I think what, what's important about this story is the actions that Apple took. Uh, there was a time when allegations like this wouldn't have slowed down a film release at all. But I think uh, in the last few years with the uh, advent of the Me Too movement, um, companies are much more aware of these kinds of things. And they're and they're taking serious uh, steps against that. Uh, you know, one of my friends that I've discussed these uh, kinds of incidents with says, that, you know, the danger is always that you you give the uh, abuser the chance to kind of do these things again. But if you, you know, if you scrub their name from the proceeds or sorry, from the credits, you take them off the film, then they kind of lose that position of of power. So it's, it's really good to see Apple taking these allegations seriously and responding appropriately. One more thing before we move on to the film, uh, Apple TV plus Andy worst streaming service so far. Worst seeming streaming service launch. I don't know (laughs) anyone. I don't know. And and I think it's the kind of thing that the no publicity is bad publicity. I don't know anyone who's talking about it. I don't know anything about the shows. I don't know anyone who has it or who voluntarily watches it. Meanwhile, Disney plus was a huge, I mean, it's become a, a cultural thing. Everyone's watching it. Yeah. I don't know anybody that has it. Nobody. And I, and meanwhile, like almost everybody in my life has some kind of Disney Plus subscription. <laughs> so uh, more on Apple TV Plus and the banker in the future on our script. Stay tuned for more. Uh, Andy has agreed to take the summary on our first film. Very excited to talk about this one. Andy, please take it away. Knives out. I suspect foul play. I have eliminated no suspects. So this is the new film from Ryan Johnson, who, of course, uh, famously did uh, The Last Jedi. And this is his first uh, film since that, almost two years now. And it's a mystery. It's a, it's a whodunit in the, uh, the vein of Murder on the Orient Express or Clue. Um, and we have some similar beats from those kinds of films. We have a, a large cast starring, and this is pretty big, uh, Chris Evans, Anna de Armas, Jamie Lee Curtis, Michael Shannon, Don Johnson, Tony Collette, Lakeith Stanfield, Christopher Plummer. I mean, it just, it goes on and on. It's a big cast. Um, and the, the story covers uh, the Thromby family, who is headed by Christopher uh, Plummer, who is Harlan Thromby, who is a mystery writer. He's a multimillionaire. He has this legacy of books. Uh, he's known the world over, has a $100 million empire. And everyone in the family is somehow kind of leeching off of <laughs> off of him at the beginning of the film. Everyone kind of gets a, a cut or, you know, he's kind of their, their patron. Um, and at the beginning uh, of the film, we uh, he meets his demise and we... 
everyone in this, the family is now a suspect and we get um, several police officers that come in, uh, one played by Lakeith Stanfield who plays Lieutenant Elliot and then the fabulous Daniel Craig as the uh, kind of quirky detective Benoit Blanc who is uh, a stand-in for, uh, I can't remember the de- detective in Murder on the Orient Express but that's who the same kind. He's an eccentric Henry kind. Poirot, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so he's a, kind of the stand-in for that, and he, you know, he's got a nice, thick southern drawl because uh, they're out in Kentucky or somewhere in in that area, and so he has to try to see who who has committed this crime. Did anyone commit this crime? Maybe multiple people commit this crime. We don't know, and it, it all takes place inside this um, very old kind of estate, creepy house that that looks like it's you know 150 years old. Um, and so that's our setup and the, the film is about a lot of things and it, it works as a great whodunit, but it also has other really interesting themes and we get great performances from everyone as well. There's a lot to talk about here. Zach, what do you think? Man, I had a lot of fun watching this movie. Uh, I love a good whodunit and this movie checks every whodunit box it possibly could. I think, uh, Rian Johnson's done a fantastic job of paying tribute to what's come before and also creating his own kind of thing. It reminds me a lot of his earlier films, movies like Brick and Looper and even The Brothers Bloom, whereas in Looper, he kind of picked up a time travel movie and ran with it in a new direction. He does the same thing with The Who Done It Here to great effect. It is a ton of fun. I really enjoyed watching this movie. I'm excited to talk about it. Andy, what did you think of Knives Out? Uh, I, I really loved it. This is definitely going on my top 10. Uh, it, it's great to see Ryan Johnson get the freedom to make his own kind of film. This is an original work uh, that that he's written. Um, and you get to see him flex his filmmaking muscles. And you see why he was trusted with something like Star Wars. Divisive as, as it was, um, he's a master filmmaker and he's done some really great things uh, in, in this film. There's incredible editing. The first act is... One thing, the mystery is its own masterpiece, and then just the the characters and the themes throughout are another. And this is what I was why I was really excited about this film because a good whodunit isn't about who did it. It's going to be it should be about a lot more than just that. And Ryan Johnson has has given us that along with with spinning a really good tale along the way. Yes. So where's the best place to kind of start this conversation? We went and saw it together, an advanced screening. Uh, if you listen to the last episode right at the end, we uh, kind of set that up right, right at the end of the show unintentionally. <laughs> yeah. But uh, so this this pans out. This worked out. We went and saw it. Uh, great time at Alamo Drafthouse. And afterwards, we grabbed a drink and hung out and chatted. And man, we I, I wasn't even sure where to start the conversation then. I'm still not sure where now. So what do you think? Uh, why don't we start with this cast? Um, so we'll, let's again. We start with Harlan Thromby, who is the uh, the patriarch of this big family, and he has, and it's hard to keep track, but he has several sons and daughters who also have sons and daughters. Uh, in a, uh, we have uh, Chris Evans, who who plays a ransom. Drysdale is a great name, and he's he's the son of one of their sons, and he's kind of a jerk. Anna De Armas plays uh, the nurse, the caretaker. Um, to Harlan Thromby, Jamie Lee Curtis is his is his daughter. Michael Shannon is his son. Is his son and is in charge of uh, the the publishing empire. And he uh, he really wants to move. He he wants to get the movie rights to the the films or sell the movie rights. And this is not something that Harlan wants to do. So that's a 
a thing of friction. That's what we see through the movie is when we meet everyone, we see how their relationship with Harlan and why they may or may not be a a suspect. Uh, Don Johnson plays Jamie Lee Curtis's uh, husband. Again, also very interested in the, uh, um, in the money. Tony Collette uh, is, is the daughter. Like he, I said, like he Stanfield plays, um, the police officer. I mean, this, and there's more, which we're we're not going to keep going into, but there's just so many people in here and they're all inner, they're all related one way or another. And the movie does a really good job of pointing out what their roles, who they are and what their kind of deal is within the family. Yeah. The movie does such a great job of setting these characters up and giving each one kind of a character and a backstory in a handful of ways. Number one, there's a lot of characters and Johnson knows that. So he doesn't make them, I mean, they're multifaceted to a point, but they're all similar. They're all, they're all children of this millionaire uh, uh, author and they're all heirs to the throne and they all want a piece of it. So everybody in this family is a little flawed in their own way, um, but ultimately similar enough that you can kind of group them all into a category. Uh, Each one has their own motivations and each one has a way in which they're trying to kind of grab power from the others. They're all a little greedy because there's the, they're this first generation kind of wealth of, of, of family members. Uh, We've got our inspectors who are a lot of fun and each independent. Daniel Craig plays Benoit Blanc, like you said, who is a private investigator, kind of on his own fun accent, foreign to the situation, but brings interesting perspective. Lakeith Stanfield is a standard fare, uh, investigator asks the basic questions and then we have a very fun I can't, I can't remember the name of the actor uh, Noah uh, Segan Noah Segan plays a young uh, trooper Wagner in this movie who is a big fan of our mystery author and he is a fanboy and he, he's, he's <laughs> laughing along with the audience he's a lot of fun our, our, our kind of main character really Anna de Armas who is very understated in the promotions for this film. Uh, she's tremendous. She really carries the film. We kind of follow her experience as the housekeeper, Marta Cabrera, uh, throughout the movie and keep up with what she's doing and really follow her motivations. And as an outsider to the family, who is included uh, because she's a housekeeper and a favorite of the millionaire, uh, she brings a really fun perspective in a lot of ways for the audience to project onto. Uh, as outsiders to learn more about the family. And she's she's tremendous in this movie. Everybody is. The, the whole cast is really good. Yeah. Like you said, the, the cast is great. Their performances and the, the nuances are... It's just incredible. And there's also this kind of political underpinning as well because you have part of the family that is conservative and the other side that's more liberal. And then this, this is a really... You see the kind of polar opposites of this in uh, two of the younger actors, uh, Catherine Langford and Jaden Martell, who who play Meg Thromby and Jacob Thromby, who are, I think, cousins in this. One is a described as an alt-right uh, troll, and then <laughs> and then the other one, Catherine Langford's character, is kind of the opposite. It's a very liberal, uh, feminist kind of person. So they represent two very opposite sides of the spectrum and with the rest of the family kind of falling somewhere in the middle. And this is also a, a great source of tension in the meantime. Yeah, it's it's one of a handful of kind of running themes in this film. You pointed this out to me. It was something I had kind of missed. This theme of first-generation wealth and, and, and kind of first-world problems, but also greed. 
and and lack of understanding between generations. There's there's a couple of scenes in here where where characters are openly debating politics without naming names, but clearly aligning themselves with a a liberal or conservative bias. Uh, within the family, and it's awkward, and it feels weird, and they don't understand their sons and daughters, who are the next generation. Yeah, we have the son, uh, the grandson, uh, played by It's uh, Jaden Martell. He plays Jacob Thromby, who is a, a uh, I, I don't want to say self-described in the movie, but the parents describe him as a, as a right-wing activist, or even a Nazi <laughs> on his phone the whole time. Yeah. And then on the other side of that, yeah, we have Catherine Lang- Langford, who plays the granddaughter of the other side of the family, who's a liberal and a social justice warrior and is going to class for feminism and none of the parents understand these two kids and the two kids kind of are you back and forth in a in a scene or two um but nobody really gets them nobody understands why people do the things that they do the motivations are lost in the money and the glamour of of, of christopher Plummer's million dollar estate um and it's a lot of fun uh, there, there's really something to be said about modern society and that ryan johnson rian johnson good lord doesn't leave that out <laughs> so i had a lot of fun with that uh let's move on to uh plot and structure mm. yes uh plot and structure is <sighs> engaging in this movie uh it opens with some very quick editing uh, uh as our characters are kind of explaining their recollection of events of the night in which Harlan Thromby was murdered. Um, we have a lot of nonlinear editing. They're all talking to our, our investigators. Uh, their stories are conflicting with each other. And very quickly, three lies emerge between stories. Three of these characters are lying to the inspectors. And that's a lot of fun in a whodunit. You, 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 you know the truth, but the characters we're watching don't on screen. And that may, that creates good suspense. And that just continues as the movie goes on. These little lies start to emerge and little, you know, mistruths and fibs for different reasons. Most of them innocent, some of them not. And it's up to us and our inspectors to figure out the truth. And also, Ana de Armas, who plays the housekeeper, Marta Cabrera, uh, our, our kind of lead in this movie. Um, I, I think that's the best way to probably describe it without giving too much away, because I think the less you know, you know about the plot, the better. But for all of the characters, for all of the juggling, it's not too confusing. If anything, a lot of these characters are kind of pushed over to one side, and we kind of group them together for the rest of the film so we can focus on our, our real plot. And I think that's really effective filmmaking. Yeah, the chronology of the film is part of what keeps it really interesting. The first act, it's it, it almost kind of happens in reverse, where the first act is uh, these interrogations with the family members, and then the second half of the first act, you kind of get to see the 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 fateful night where the the murder takes place, and so everything is a kind of out of order, but you can still easy enough to follow along. And the opening um, interrogations have this brilliant piece of ed- editing where. A conversation is never started or finished with the same person it starts. It, it's intercutting with all the members of the family um, in a really comical way. The movie's really funny, but also something that it, it gives you a lot of the history because people aren't necessarily lying about what happened. They're they're lying about things like their their relationship to uh, to Harlan Thromby or you know different size of the family business or these are the kinds of of truths or half truths that that get told and like i said are kind of cycled between uh all the family and it familiarizes you with everyone and why everyone's kind of a terrible person and why they're so greedy and and the conflicts where within uh between amongst themselves 
Yeah, I, if I if I had to find any anywhere to nitpick, I, I almost wish uh, we got a little bit more ex- exploration into our investigators, but I think that would have just made it confusing. Uh, and I do think the plot gets a little convoluted by the end, but it comes back around and it ties up in a bow well enough that it's it's manageable. It's serviceable. You're not. I don't think you're going to be too confused by this movie. In fact, one of the things I said when we came out of it, I said, man, that's a movie I, I would feel fine recommending to um, some of like my parents who can get along with the movie just fine. But it's not it's not too much for how many characters for how star studded this cast is. You would think it would be too confusing. It isn't. It's actually really well managed and easy to follow. I was really pleased with that. Yeah, and I was going to say the the second and third acts go on to, uh, you know, we develop the aftermath of you know the the murder and all these interrogations, and then and again, there's still lots of cutting back. There's there's lots of flashback use of flashback in this film to events you know that happened the night before, um, which crisscross and get a little, it gets complicated but easy enough to follow. And I think that all comes in the writing. And it's written by Ryan Rian Johnson. Good Lord, just this whole show, I'm going to do that. Uh, <laughs> is it Ryan or Rian? Let me just get it out right now, well, since I know. It's Ryan. It's Ryan. It's Ryan Johnson. So I've just been saying Rian the whole time and correcting myself mm. for no reason. Great. Ryan Johnson, got it. Uh, Ryan Johnson wrote the film and directed it. And, and I remember when it ended, I, I said, you know, I don't know what I'm more impressed by, the directing or the writing here, because both are tremendous. It'd probably be the writing by a hair just because it feels so smart. Um, but the direction's fantastic as well. He had a very clear vision for what he wanted to do here, and I think it works to great effect. Right, yeah, you're exactly right. Um, yeah, I, sorry, I was thinking of moving on to uh, setting or Let's themes or... Yeah. So the the setting is in the South, and I can't remember which state uh, exactly. I want to keep saying Kentucky, but like I said, it's in this great old house that's this estate. You know, there's it's three stories tall. Everything is covered in wood. It's very elaborate, very ornate. There's some secret uh, passages or some small doors or some hidden spaces. It's, you know, a house that kind of creaks and groans uh, with life. And, and then again, we have the the South as a, as a backdrop as well. When we, we hear that in uh, Benoit Blanc. <laughs> yes. Uh, I, yeah, I'm not sure where it is. I just tried to figure it out and I, IMDb doesn't say where it actually takes place, but most of the film takes place in this house, right? This eccentric house owned by a murder mystery author, millionaire, uh, Harlan Thrombey. The house in this film is tremendous. It's so cool. It's got so many odd angles and 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 shapes. The, the the roof comes in in a weird way. It's a classic colonial. It's got tons of wallpapers and paints and textures and colors. And then the house is filled with even more wacky stuff. Figurines and and puppets and and gargoyles and weird shit. It's it's like Guillermo del Toro lives in this thing or something. Like it's such a wacky joint. And it's so cool to look at. Like, anytime it just cuts to establishing shots, it's interesting. Because you're always looking at something, like, engaging. And that, that set design, that, that meticulous kind of engaging style extends to our costume design as well. Our characters are all dressed to the nines in very interesting wardrobe choices. You can look at the poster just to see how all of them look different and wear different colors and textures. All of that is so visually interesting. It just keeps you glued in for the two-hour, ten-minute runtime. It doesn't feel doesn't feel like too much. No, you're exactly right. And the house becomes a character in in a lot of ways. Where, um, 
like there's a, there's an instance where there's a set of stairs that are notoriously creaky and noisy and this becomes uh you know uh, an essential plot point uh la- later on and it's you know there's little things like that all throughout the film the geography of the house is important and it, and also kind of difficult to to put together you, it, you don't it's a bit like the shining you don't get, you don't get a good feel of where you are in the house really uh ever Yes, uh, and that also kind of steps on your flashback scenes, like you said. It's a little. There's there was one one flashback in particular where I got confused and couldn't figure out whether we we're in present or past tense. But it, it all again, it all comes around. It doesn't it doesn't feel like too much in the moment. You might be a little lost, but I think part of a good whodunit is that you feel a little lost at some points. And by the end, it all it all ties up in a bow, and it feels okay. Now it all makes sense. The the picture is clear. I understand the crime and what happened and who done it and 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 Rian Johnson Ryan Johnson my god does a fantastic job of paying homage to what came before clearly he's a fan of the genre and it works it pays off uh, I I think it was really good stuff yeah and so, it's really d- difficult it's really difficult to do as well you know I was thinking of something like you could easily do a film like this where it just kind of ends up like um uh oceans oceans 11 where at the very end the, the reveal of how it all came this super complex thing and it could just be that but that's you're just trying to fool the audience at that point and it's just kind of boring so it i think is a very hard genre to write and and ryan johnson's done a great job do we think it's predictable i'm curious if you because I, I i was not able to predict the ending i had suspicions but i didn't know how it all came together and by the time you find out who done it um, was that ending satisfying to you? I I thought that um, yeah, it was completely unpredictable. I I did think it would be a lot more complicated than you might initially think, or I I thought you you would probably have a, a complex uh, ending. Um, so I I mean I love the the film from from start to finish for sure. Right, you didn't you didn't think it was unsatisfying, even if it didn't end the way you thought it was gonna. R- right. Yeah, I I didn't as well. I I I think fundamentally as as an entry in the genre of the whodunit. Uh, I think it did a great job. It, yeah, it didn't end the way I expected, but I think most whodunits don't, right? You, you need to be a little surprised. And it also wasn't unsatisfying. It didn't feel like Jump the Shark. It wasn't like, it wasn't like Now You See Me, that movie with the magicians, uh, where <laughs> right. the ending is like so absurd. It's like nobody ever would have figured that out. Like, arguably, there's breadcrumbs here. You could figure out the clues. And like, that's the charm of it. The, the investigators... Uh, and our characters kind of piece it together and and decide ultimately here's here's how it all happened. Um, very satisfying to me, and that's that's what matters the most in a picture like this. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, very tightly written. Very very smart. Um, I wanted to get uh, move on to themes and and deeper meanings here. Sure. Um, this film is about a lot of things. It's not just about who who committed the crime. Uh, we have. Uh, a number of themes uh family greed wealth generational wealth immigration um you know there's definitely some political context uh here and it's important like i said we have both sides uh represented um (laughs) but that doesn't necessarily mean what neither side isn't isn't necessarily portrayed as being more uh you know correct than the other and in fact they're both really pretty terrible uh as portrayed so there's there's a lot of this going on underneath the the overall uh mystery we're trying to solve 
Yeah, like the the American Dream is another one I'd say is really relevant here. Um, I, I think when a director kind of puts something in a movie, often it's their way of making a statement, right? How I feel about something. So when Ryan Johnson's got two characters openly debating current pop, like 2019 politics in America, it's interesting to me because to me it's him making a statement, right? Where is this going? And ultimately, it, the statement is here's a presentation of, of two sides bickering. What do you think? He doesn't really say either way what's right and what's wrong. And that's what's most interesting about it, that you're he would be so brazen and just say, hey, uh, here's something interesting. You know, that, that uncomfortable part of Thanksgiving where families are, are arguing politics. I'm going to drop you right in the middle of that. And you get to just see it play out and, and kind of observe the absurdity of the situation uh, without saying anything either way. And I think that's what was so charming about it. He doesn't necessarily take a stance. He doesn't say, hey, this is right or this is wrong. Uh, he just puts it out there and says, hey, here, here's where things are. Look how absurd it is. Um, it's really charming in that way. And I think the kind of larger theme of greed and wealth is ultimately what the film is about, hence the title Knives Out. Um, but I, I don't think that is too overbearing. It doesn't feel like it's too strong. And I think a lot of... A lot of moviegoers who are kind of just in it to find out who done it uh, won't be disappointed by it. I, I don't think it gets. I don't think it steps on their experience. It's not too heavy-handed. Well, and and like something like Parasite, um, which you know had a very kind of um, important social message. It's not, you know, it's not on the nose, and it's not hitting you over the. Head. It's not preaching at you. It's it's taking a very complex look at. Uh, at situations, you know, and, and kind of bringing up a lot of good points. And, and it's something that I think is very challenging to do because it's easy to do the, the real broad black and white version of this is right, this is wrong. It's it's much different to, to take a much more complex and nuanced approach. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about Parasite and, uh, you know, its message isn't that what you wealthy people are bad and poor people are good. In fact, it's almost the opposite. Um, but what it's criticizing is the system that creates incredible wealth and incredible poverty is the problem. And that's, that's a very nuanced message that the filmmaker was able to create. And we get, I, I think not quite to that level, but we get a pretty complex, um, statements by Ryan Johnson in knives out as well. Yes. And, and one more thing before we probably move on to recommendations. Um, the soundtrack in this movie is great. We haven't. We would totally miss that. Oh yeah, yeah, uh, that's yeah. Right. It's it's uh, orchestral and pay, play, pays a lot of homage to kind of forties and fifties film. It's it's very suspenseful and exciting and deep and robust. Uh, totally could have been phoned in, and it isn't. It it feels real good in this movie. It's got a whole lot of energy to it. Um, it's 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 really strong. Yeah, yeah. worth mentioning. Yeah, de- definitely, and and it's uh, I think it might just be a, a string quartet, but it's a small ensemble, and it reminds me of a lot of like uh, what we would call incidental music in in opera. It, it's the music that's happening when people aren't talking. Um, we get a lot of this, re- like you said, really dramatic, really creative, and on point. It helps really kind of move the film along. Hmm. Well, any other thoughts for recommendations? I'm ready. Andy, would you recommend Knives Out? <laughs> Absolutely. I've been looking forward to this uh, all year and f- ever since uh, Ryan Johnson's last film. Um, it's it's really smart. It's really funny. Uh, it's got a complex uh, plot. It's got incredible cast, great performances, uh, deeper themes and meanings. Uh, it's definitely going on my top 10. Highly recommend. 
I would recommend it as well. None, with with no caveats, I think this movie is great for everybody. It's PG-13. It's not too violent. It's not too preachy. It's pretty funny. It's also pretty suspenseful. It's a great kind of thriller, crom- comedy, crime, drama film that I had a ton of fun with. The sets are engaging. The characters are great. The plot's fantastic. Knives Out is totally worth the price of admission. It is a really, really fun film. I'll probably have it on my top 10 as well this year, so keep an eye out for it. And go see it, because like I said, we saw an early screening, which means it's coming out this Wednesday, I think. Tomorrow, actually, if you're yeah, listening that's right. to the show, from when we're recording. Uh, so totally worth the time. Take your take your Thanksgiving fam to go see it if you're not into the Frozen 2 scene. So with that, we should probably move on to our next segment before our final review. Andy, you want to take the honors on this? It's time for the death of cinema. So we're going to be talking about uh, this new article that came came out, I think actually just today, DC Films Plots Future with Superman, Green Lantern, and R-rated films. Um, so we're going to be talking about DC Films, where they've been and where they've come. I feel like they should have hired us to write this article because this article says a lot of things that we, we have said before, yeah. such, as, such as that um, DC got off to a really rough start because they were trying to copy what Marvel was doing, and they were trying to do it on the quick, which meant they that films were rushed. They didn't have the time and care they needed to develop original stories and get to their group film in, in time. They were in a race that they didn't need to be, and they lost it themselves. However, they have turned things around in the last few years, um, notably with Aquaman, of all things, turned into a massive billion-dollar property. We've just talked about Joker as well. Um, and then other things such as uh, Shazam was also a big hit. And then we have some more uh, films. Uh, sorry, Wonder Woman 2. Uh, we have Wonder Woman 2 also coming up. And yes. then um, Harley Quinn in the, in the Birds of Prey film as well. So they've really steered the ship. They've really turned things around. And they're looking to move in uh, some new directions. And this means some new decisions with Green Lantern, with a possible show and film. And, but also the problem of what do you do with the big property with Superman and Batman? These are the two iconic properties, but they have also been kind of the most problematic in this in, since the DC Universe started. You know, I've got a lot of hot takes on this. Uh, I'm not sure where the best place to jump in is, so let's just start with this R-rated movies idea that they're going to take this and run with it. Uh, I think DC is finding their footing, which is great, because DC has a ton of fantastic properties that are worth, their stories worth telling on the big screen. And I don't think going with an R-rated interpretation is bad. I really don't. It's divisive because a lot of kids may not be able to get in and see it but it's also different marvel isn't even touching it they're doing family films no in fact no no real universes are doing this other than bloomhouse pictures and even those are mostly pg-13 films it's different and it's exciting in a way that dc hasn't been able to really do outside of movies like wonder woman and shazam and even aquaman that are much more family friendly but also a little wiser and a little smarter and, and they're just a little a little bit sharper than their Marvel counterparts and I think that matters. These R-rated movies seem to check that box, especially Todd Phillips' Joker. I mean, it's, it's so cutting in a way that other comic book films haven't been yet and that matters. Now, can you make a bunch of R-rated films? Can you replicate that formula over and over and over? 
That I don't know because <laughs> Joker, I mean, it catches lightning in a bottle in a way that, I mean, I don't know if you can catch that lightning again, you know, that, that, that might be an even loftier challenge than just making one R rated comic book film. Uh, what do you think about that? I mean, we know that there is a demand for the R rated comic book film and action film. You know, I'm, th- I'm reminded of things like the John Wick series, hugely popular. And then, uh, comic book wise, Logan from, uh, I think it was 2017, incredible film uh that was you know pretty hard r rating so there is a demand for this level of comic book and superhero films uh but they need you got to take the plunge and if marvel isn't stepping up uh to that challenge then this is a great opportunity for warner brothers and dc to kind of fill that space but i think you are right you have to take a little bit you can't jump in too heavy. You can't have, you know, try to do yeah. 10, 10 rated R movies. Uh, probably right. doing half that or less is probably a better idea. And they are still doing Wonder Woman 1984. They're doing Black Adam uh, uh, with Dwayne The Rock Johnson in 2021. I, I should stop calling him Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Just Dwayne Johnson will probably do fine. Uh I, you know, they're, they're going to do some kind of Aquaman sequel, so I think it's going to be a mix. And they're still doing Birds of Prey. That's a thing. So they're going to have to work something out um but man I, I i'm glad they're finding a place i'm just not sure where that place is and i'm a little worried those those suits right those studio execs are going to see making a billion dollars off joker versus making nothing off justice league and go oh okay we're, we're, we're going all in on we're this, going all this in, is, yeah. yeah this is the way to go and that that might be too much you got to be patient when you catch something like this yeah let, let let's hope that that's not uh, what they do that they go you know all the way to to that end because I think part of what's helping DC right now is the the variety of the kinds of films like something like Shazam is completely different from something like Joker and the Harley Quinn movie also looks completely different from those other two so I think having you know not defining yourself as just being one thing which has kind of happened to Marvel Mar- like a Marvel movie is now everyone kind of knows what to expect so um, having more diversity in the style of film you're making, I think, is really smart and can really help them. Yeah, uh, it's Sean Robbins, chief analyst at BoxOffice.com, for what it's worth, has a great quote about the beginning of DC's film origins and where they're going uh, regarding their kind of stumble at the start with uh, Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice, and Justice League. He said their initial mistake was that they tried to do too much too fast. They were trying to copy the Marvel model. That took time and years of building up characters. You can't start with a big ensemble movie. You need to earn that. And at least part of that might still ring true for what they're doing now. You can't try to do too much too fast, right? You got to onboard people. You got to give it time. Marvel started with Iron Man, and then they kind of grew a couple from there. And before you know it, you got Avengers. But it also took a decade to make that happen. Mm -hmm. So DC might want to rush in here, but... I, I definitely want to see what they're going to do with something like Batman, which is only growing in, in casting decisions uh, and is just getting more and more engaging as we go. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. The, um, they don't necessarily need to do the same thing that, that again, that Marvel did, but they... Oh, man, I've to- <laughs> totally lost my train of thought. And no, 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 no. I, I can pick it back up. If you want. Yes, please. <laughs> yes, uh, right. Uh, so, yeah, Batman, like I was saying, uh, they're casting. We've talked about it on the show before. They're casting uh, uh, Robert Pattinson as our Batman character. We've also got uh, uh, Jeffrey Combs. Jeffrey Combs? Jeffrey Wright? Jeffrey Wright. I don't remember. Jeffrey Wright 
as Commissioner Gordon from Westworld, uh, we've got man. I had a list here. I really messed this up. Right. Okay. I think. Either, I think. Either, I, got, I think. I got it back. So what? Please. I was yeah. Just take take say this away from me. Was the you can move faster in production if you're not trying to ma- build a universe. If you're not trying to do the group film. If you are doing the group film, you have to take your time. So I think it might benefit DC to just you know do their one-off films or do like a set of three films with a certain character or set or set of characters instead of trying to do the 10 20 cuz you can still do 10 20 films they just won't necessarily have to be all interconnected mhm i i and I don't know how they're going to bridge that gap, right? That's great. You guys want to make another Joker. Perfect. You also have Birds of Prey coming out, which is a completely different Joker in that film. So what do you do? You just reboot Jared Leto's Joker and act like it never happened? You just leave that in the past, you know? Or, or, or Superman, right? Apparently, the studio had some talks with Michael B. Jordan early this year about maybe doing something with the character. He's got a full deck of cards. He, he's not going to be able to do anything for at least a couple of years. They're saying 2023 might be when something happens there. But at the same time, I read an article about Henry Cavill last last uh, last week uh, that, that said he's not completely done with the character, per se. He said, the suit's in my closet, but I, I, I it's not in storage yet. Like, I, I'm still <laughs> That's interested a great quote. in it. I think, I think maybe there's a, a hybrid here. Maybe there's a clever way you can kind of keep both alive. You don't necessarily have to kill off Cavill's Superman just because you kind of soured a relationship with him. If anything, why not have Superman just kind of wait in the wings, similar to Shazam, right? And then maybe in end credit scene or something, we have our, our, our titular hero return at the end of the Batman or something, right? Like maybe, maybe there's a way to rally that nostalgia in the power of the character and have people go, Oh, Hey, Superman's back. You know, like maybe there's something you could do there. Uh, um, yeah, I don't we, think you have to just restart, but maybe you do. One of the things that, that really disappointed me is I, I'm a big fan of man of steel, and where that film, you know, almost went. And I was really disappointed that we really didn't have a follow-up to that. You know, they were supposed to do another Superman sequel before heading into Batman vs. Superman, but then the studio panicked and just did it right away. Um, so there's definitely more story to tell. And I would love to see... One way you could kind of bring the character back is to just have a Superman-focused story where you don't, you know, you don't have, like, the rest of the Justice League or any of them, where it's just him dealing with the Superman problems, Superman villains, um, you know, because it was rumored that Supergirl was supposed to show up in this universe at at some point, so you could still continue on. And I would love to see uh, Henry Cavill uh, remain as as Superman. At the same time, Michael B. Jordan would also be fantastic, and it would be fantastic to see uh, a person of color uh, represent uh, Superman. Yeah, I agree. That, That could be really interesting. For what it's worth, DC is still spinning their wheels. Something's happening over there. Supposedly, they picked up Ezra Miller's uh, uh, Flash script, which is cool. I think they're going to get Andy Machete from It to direct that. That's that's going to be something, you know. They're really trying to figure out something to do with this Green Lantern property, maybe a television show, some kind of limited series in HBO. Could be really engaging. And it's worth mentioning DC's Warner DC's connection with the CW and Warner Brothers, their television properties, are really doing something over there. This isn't a television podcast and we don't really talk about it but supposedly they got a lot happening yeah absolutely i've heard they they their their shows they're killing it on tv their the shows are very popular and i would i would love to see them ta- tackle some of these things that they're doing on, on their shows on hit the big screen like you know final crisis or or flashpoint or some of these uh real iconic story arcs right rebooting within the universe would be awesome something like flashpoint would really enable that but we'll see I think a fine example of that in comic book movies would be X-Men Days of Future Past, right? Mm-hmm. 
it's probably the best in-universe reboot I've ever seen. Uh, that, was, that was really well done. But for what it's worth, uh, keep it here on Offscript for more on DC films and where they're going. And with that, we should move on to our final review of the evening. I'm going to be taking the, of the podcast. Excuse me, we're recording in the evening, but it could be the morning for you, for all I know. Hello, future person. Uh, listener, we should talk about our final film of the show. The movie is Frozen 2. Into the end. picks up just a couple of years after Frozen 1 with our main characters Anna, Elsa, Kristoff, Olaf, and the lovable moose Sven as our characters leave their beloved kingdom of Arendelle to travel to an ancient autumn-bound forest of an enchanted land uh, to find the origin of Elsa's powers and save their kingdom. Uh, there's a lot going on in this movie. There is a new kind of race of indigenous peoples presented in the, I don't remember the name exactly. Aaron, uh, Aaron, the, oh, the, the, I see what you mean. Sorry. Yes. Uh, let's just go with new race of indigenous peoples. Uh, no, North Uldra. I'm sorry. North Uldra is their name, which is totally easy to remember. <laughs> uh, we've got a mysterious land. We're discovering where Elsa's powers come from and really magic in the world of frozen. Maybe a little bit about what really happened to Anna and Elsa's parents. Um, a lot happening in this movie. Our, our characters going on another grand adventure together. Like uh, it reminded me of, of the Fellowship of the Ring a little bit. They all group together and hey, here we go into the into the dark. You know, we're gonna we're gonna make it happen. A lot of fun for kids. Uh, a little bit of fun for adults. Uh, Andy, what did you think of Frozen Two? Well, first I want to talk about a little bit about watching Frozen One, which I only recently saw like i somehow yeah. missed it in 2013 and i watched it last thursday before seeing the sequel over the weekend and i was actually a little unimpressed a little with it. I, I was a little surprised that it it was became as big of a hit as it did I, I thought it had great characters and great songs but i felt like the plot and story w- weren't necessarily uh they were pretty simple to me. Now it was great to see, you know, some some archetypes broken, having these these two uh, female leads, where you know they don't they're not depending on a prince, or they don't get married in the end. I thought those were very uh, positive and progressive things. Uh, but the overall plot was just uh, it just didn't grab me. So I was really surprised to to see it be as successful as it was. That said, I really enjoyed Frozen too. I, I thought it was. A, it was just a better, um, a more expanded movie. Again, we've talked about Blade Runner versus Blade Runner 2049. You get uh, an expansion of the mythos, of the setting. Uh, you learn more about the uh, the princesses and their their family, their background. Uh, there's a lot in there. And, and the animation is, is stunning. You get... Uh, new songs there's going to be you know new hits that you know it may not be quite as as popular as let it go but it'll it'll be close um i i really enjoyed it it's funny uh i i think my favorite favorite character is actually olaf which i didn't wow, re- really? which which i really didn't like in the first film but i did like him a lot in the f- second film he's to me he's very funny uh in, yeah. in this role so there's uh, a lot of it and i really enjoyed it and i enjoyed it more than the first film I can't say whether or not I enjoyed it more than the first film because they're they're definitely different. Uh, they're they're definitely different in tone uh, and they're definitely different stories. I I did not think Frozen was Disney Animation's uh, best 
work to date. Uh, I, I definitely like something like Tangled more than Frozen, but it didn't matter. It, it, what, what matters is the children, right? The youth, and, and they were all about Let It Go. So Frozen became the cultural uh, staple that it is. Frozen 2 naturally has to pick up a lot of that slack. It's a very tall order to, to make a sequel to Frozen 2. And this one checks all the boxes it needs to. You're right. It's got the great animation. It's got the fun songs. It's got the fun characters. It grows the universe in a way that's not too taxing on what's come before. It doesn't add too many new characters to our plate, but it's definitely got some charming, fun little, you know, what haves you. I, I enjoyed the way our characters managed to kind of stick together through this movie. There's obviously some challenges and hurdles they have to overcome to become better people. That's pretty much standard in any film. Uh, and we get that. But for the most part, like, there's a real sense of fellowship and togetherness. And that's placed in front of a backdrop of growing older and change. In fact, the very first song in the movie is about change. Uh, and Olaf struggles with that. He, he yes. talks about, when I get older, maybe I'll know this. And I'm getting older and learning how to read and learning how to do things. That's obviously... Uh, you know, a place for kids, I think, to rest a lot of confidence when watching this movie. The characters in Frozen are getting older, just like I am, and that's good. Um, I And that's kind of what makes it a different film. Uh, it, it makes it a little bit more mature, a little bit more robust. There's a great scene in this movie where uh, Elsa hears a little bit of Let It Go and literally sighs, like, oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it's self-reflexive, it's fun, and it's different. So let's talk about this movie as a larger piece. First, let's talk about our characters. Anna, Elsa, the two sisters. We'll get to Olaf and Sven and Kristoff soon. <laughs> right. How did we feel about them, Andy? Because you're pretty new to them. Um, right, so we see uh, Elsa kind of taking the, the lead as she is... Uh, princess or she is queen of of arendelle at at this point um and we see her you know leading the city but there's kind of an incident at the beginning uh, of the film where she has to make some difficult decisions that affect everyone and then she also has to help kind of uh in a save the city kind of uh, situation Uh, but she still you know struggles with uh asking people for help she wants to go she wants to go it alone she wants to not put other people in, in danger she just wants to kind of go off on her own she has a really hard time you know trusting her friends to kind of bring her along yeah it's a real challenge for a character because she makes it clear at the very beginning of the film that like she loves where she's at but she's still somehow unfulfilled. It's not enough because she's different. She has powers and, and being queen of, of Arendelle is great. And she loves her sister and she, you know, loves, loves her lovable snowman, of course. But like, there's just something more, there's something out there, you know, that she has to kind of discover. And that's really the central plot of our film is Elsa kind of, finding that and discovering herself. Uh, Anna, of course, uh, played by Kristen Bell is the very affable, uh, younger sister. Who's, a little bit more confusing in this movie than I think she was in the last one. She's she's got some kind of odd quirks and tendencies. At one point, Kristoff, uh, who who's very fun, played by Jonathan Groff from Mind, from Netflix's Mindhunter, um, is is trying to propose to her. He's trying trying to take the next step in the relationship and, and say, hey, let's get married. And and anytime he tries, she's very standoffish because she's confused by by how he's presenting himself and 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 at one point she says you think i'm weird and he says no of course not And at that point in the movie i was like yeah you are weird you're very (laughs) weird like you're not normal at all you know her character is written in an odd way that i think is supposed to make her complex but ultimately to me felt like she was just a little too much 
Kristoff's fun. Olaf is more complex than he used to be, which, which makes him a little bit more relatable as an adult, he, I think. He's maybe a little bit too complex. So I, I do really uh, enjoy this gag, but um, Olaf is like having an existential crisis throughout the entire film. And yeah. like, like he, he says all uh, he has all these, uh, you know, short sayings that are very, very adult and that will fly over the kid's head. And I'm adult. I mean, in intellectually speaking uh he, but he says things like you know do you do you think the advancement of technology will be both our savior and our doom like <laughs> it's like chill out man yeah wow <laughs> like, um you know but he he has all these kinds of lines and you know in the first film he was the comic relief and in this film he he's the same and uh, i i really enjoyed him as a character much more so in this film than than the first one that seems like a great place to jump into the divide between what kids will enjoy in this film and what parents will enjoy, right? I think any good family animated film has to do both. You have to have something that kids like and you have to have stuff that adults like, little little side jokes and gags, you know? And, and I think the things that kids will enjoy in this movie is... Most of the music, uh, I think that's always a good time. A lot of the animation is very fun. The new setting is cool. Uh, the North Ultra are... A little basic. They're certainly not as interesting as like our rock trolls in the previous film, which were much more engaging. These are just like indigenous peoples who live in a magical forest. There's, there's really not a whole lot to them fundamentally. Um, but you know, I, th- I think that new setting is, is cool. And I think kind of the challenges of Elsa discovering her magical powers again and, and really finding out more about them is, is really fun. Uh, the things parents will have fun with are the side gags. Yeah. Things like Olaf's, <laughs> unexpected maturity in this film <laughs> right. uh uh christoph trying to propose to to elsa is a lot of fun or anna is a lot of fun because it's a mature problem um and, and and a couple of the songs that's worth mentioning uh there, there's two songs in this movie that are standouts i think uh into the unknown is kind of I, I would think elsa's new let that's, it go yeah, for this movie. Exactly, yeah. totally is Yes, uh, even has that like crazy high note that Adina Menzel can barely hit, and it sounds like she's dying. When I mean, she hits it just fine, but like, oh my god, she's a she's an str- yeah, singing str- soprano. Yeah, like she's really real. struggling. Um, but good for her. And um, Christoph uh, gets a song in this movie called "Lost in the Woods," which is. I would argue possibly <laughs> the greatest eighties power ballad of yeah. the decade <laughs> yes. out of nowhere. Like I couldn't believe it watching this movie. Like, Oh God, this is a straight eighties tribute and it totally, uh, totally works. I really enjoyed that. Yeah. Uh, how it, about you? Any, any standout song? <laughs> yeah, definitely that one. I mean, it's, it's like a meatloaf ballad, um, all yes. over again. And it's, it comes out of nowhere. I mean, it, nowhere. It, it, in, in a, you know, Frozen ha- has an aesthetic, if you will, uh, of song and, and the way it sounds. And when you get this, like you said, 80s power ballad, bad it, ballad you know, reminded of things like Guns N' Roses, I was like, man, that's, that's really something that's really out there. I, yeah. Elsa has a couple of new uh, songs that are very, you know, they're going to be the what everyone sings, what everyone you, sees on American Idol or tries to compete with. Uh, and then we have Anna has a couple of like kind of really dark songs uh, later in the film, yeah. which, which is surprising. And you know what, what when I was um, talking about uh, Fro- the original Frozen, I was like, man, that Disney's still doing that real dark stuff, that real like, you know, kill your parents kind of thing. And uh, this film has a lot of that uh, too. It has a lot of, of darkness. They have not shied away from that. 
Yeah, uh, the, the song in question that, that, that really stood out uh, was Anna's uh, The Next Right Thing, which is probably the end of the second act or maybe the beginning of the third act of the film. Lyrically, that song sounds like it's straight up about depression. Like, <laughs> yes. Really. <laughs> yes. Yeah, uh, it's taking the next step, and I was like, oh my god, like this is this is some dark stuff. And I think that's so fascinating. How does Disney handle dark in 2019, right? How do you handle a character death, maybe, in 2019? Uh, the loss of power for a character that we've come to understand is strong. And I think they do it tastefully in this movie. It didn't feel too heavy-handed. I, I definitely heard some kids in the theater I was in, like, you know, a- asking their parents what was wrong with this character when something happened to them. <laughs> um, but, you know, it comes around and just like in classic Disney fashion, everything everything turns out to be pretty pretty much roses by the end of the film and, and, sa- and a satisfying ending that's triumphant for our characters and the kids watching. But yeah, I, I was really interested to see how Disney handles the darkness and they do a pretty good job par- dead parents withstanding you know yes so we well, should talk about go ahead well and uh, the other thing i wanted to mention that is mature is there's definitely uh, some kind of themes or backgrounds about colonization with these kind of native uh, mm-hmm. people and um, i'm gonna go as far as to say th- uh, things like reparations are, are definitely I, I think part of a, a theme like there's there's environmental stuff there's things with like you know that definitely reference Native Americans and the treatment of indigenous peoples at large. So that is going off just a little softly in, in the background. I do want to talk about the animation. Uh, I don't want to say it's like standard fare, but I think they're a little limited by sticking to the art style that Frozen has. Right, it can't be too different. So a lot of it looks similar to the first film, but certainly more complex. A lot of sweeping landscapes, really, really far views of forests seem to go on for miles and big mountainscapes. But the thing that most stood out to me in this film was the water, yeah. which is weird uh, totally. because it's a movie called Frozen. But the water effects in this film are fantastic. Uh, droplets of water and then large slow moving waves in this movie look real good anything of like real time of large waves is yeah, mediocre um but man like they really managed to nail uh, the look of water in a way that i haven't seen in animated films so far so if there's anywhere this movie takes big strides animation wise i'd say it's there and lighting but mostly mostly the water really impressive yeah, yeah absolutely and that that's part of a you know probably there's probably a theme somewhere in there but there's you know waves the sea oceans dams rivers like it it all these are all important elements and that we spend a lot of time around these places as as well in the movie and like you said the animation looks really stunning um when it kind of comes to those elements as far as the entire kind of plot is concerned um i do i guess i don't think it's too confusing uh it's it's a little bit of a a a quick i don't want to say it's a quick journey but it moves fast you got to keep up uh, and our characters do kind of get split up in a way that's a little unsatisfying, but I think anytime the fellowship gets split up, it's unsatisfying, right? You don't yeah. want them to kind of trail off. A couple of our characters pretty much get sidelined till the end of the film. Like they just vanish for like a half hour, you know, and then they come back at the end like, oh, here, here they are. Here's where they've been the whole time. I get it. You don't want it to be too confusing for kids, but it's a little bit of a bummer when you present your kind of five leads as, as this strong group. And then two of them pretty much vanish till the till the third act. You know, um, it's okay though. Kristoff uh, does get a fun song again, so that's might be worth it. Um, fun fact about that: apparently, Jonathan Groff, who voices Kristoff, totally thought that song was going to get cut. He was like, "There's no way this is going to make it into the final movie," and like, no, it does, and it's a standout. I think it's a really great bit. Uh, I, I think our characters. 
I think the way they split up is unsatisfying only because it seems to go against kind of their motivations. Uh, uh, Anna really wants to stick next to Elsa all the time and Elsa wants that too, but pushes her away despite herself for what really to me felt like no good reason. Um, but I, I, I guess you have it's, to, you have to a have a reason film, for our characters <laughs> to develop, right? Yeah. It's a children's film. So maybe I'm looking into it too much. Well, what did you think about that? Was plot too complex, too simple? I, I thought it was actually a bit like a remind me of knives out in, in that it's a mystery. You're trying to f- figure out a number of things along the way and you slowly get more and more clues t- uh, as you kind of seek the truth. And, on a number of fronts, you know, we're looking for more information, the truth about Anna, Anna and Anna's, Anna and Anna, Elsa and Anna's parents, um, the truth about what happened with these North Oldra people, where this uh, kind of uh, voice that Elsa hears is coming from and what that means and why things are, why certain things are the way they are. So we're, we're definitely having to unravel a lot. And like you said, it does move pretty, pretty quick. Uh, one more thing. How does this film act as a sequel to Frozen? Right. I think that's worth mentioning. Um I don't feel like it steps on what Frozen is. I also don't feel like it infringes on what Frozen was, if that makes any sense. It grows the universe in a way that feels organic, and you can still watch the first film and enjoy it completely as a standalone film. This is not required viewing by any means, and honestly, you don't even have to have seen the first Frozen film to see this one. They both kind of stand on their own, and I think most good sequels do that, right? Like, it it should kind of be... It should be a solid film, regardless of where our characters have come from. It should stand on its own. Similar to like Terminator 2 or Aliens, right? You don't have to have seen the original to know where things are going. Um, I was really pleased by that. Disney did a great job putting this together. Yeah, you're absolutely right. They do, and they recap it for you uh, a couple of times. And uh, particularly um, one part that's really funny is Olaf does basically a summary of the first film in pretty hysterical fashion. So they they do hit those numbers. But yeah, it, to me, it, it completely stands on its own. And it, it also gets rid of things like, you know, in the first film, you have this whole thing about these suitors coming to suit the, uh, the princesses. Um, so it's nice that we don't have any of those kind of classical fairy tale uh, subplots to kind of deal with. We've moved on from the, all that. Yes, and you're right. The the Olaf recap is is arguably my favorite scene of him in this film. Uh, it's very Michael Pena from Ant Man. Yeah, like let's let's have a, let's have a character recap the film, the previous film, in a funny way. Uh, it's actually very effective. So, Andy, uh, without further ado, as two two adult males who this movie is in no way designed for, who don't have children. Uh, what did you think of Frozen Two? Oh, sorry, would you recommend <laughs> Jesus Frozen Two? <laughs> Um, absolutely. I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was an improvement on the first film. It had fantastic songs. It looks incredible. Um, good performances, fabulous animation, intriguing plot. And it's funny. I I laughed uh, quite a bit and, you know, I was in kind of a, a loud, uh, reckless theater uh, with lots of children running around. Um, and I still, uh, really enjoyed it. You know, I put the soundtrack on after I got in the car. So it's, it's, Definitely, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it and would highly recommend it. Yeah, I, I think I would as well. Ton of fun, uh, especially if you got kids. If you don't, I mean, you got probably going to like the first one or be doing like a movie podcast to give you a good reason <laughs> to go see it. Um, but ultimately, a good sequel. I think Disney did a fine job with this. It didn't feel too heavy-handed. It didn't feel too lighthearted. It kind of lands right in the middle, and it's a lot of fun. Uh, I think the music's real good. Uh, I I. I don't know if this film has a standout song like Let It Go. I don't think it has one that'll really take off like that, but 
still good stuff. I, I, I good. I'm sure they'll do another one, or they'll do a Netflix Frozen series, or sorry, Disney Plus Frozen series, or something. Uh, I enjoyed it. When it comes to Disney Plus, uh, uh, check it out because I'm sure it'll be on there. Or yeah. go see it over Thanksgiving when you're sick of your family. Yeah, just wait and for the. With, uh, I was gonna say, just wait. They're gonna do the. Uh, eventually, they'll do a live action Frozen, and that'll make a billion dollars too. Oh sure, I, I, they already do Frozen on Ice, right? We're almost there. So what's the difference? Uh, and with that being said, uh, we should talk about what we're seeing next week before we wrap the show here. It is Thanksgiving here in North America. If you're not, if you if you don't live here. I'm sure everybody that listens to this show does. Uh, so we're not going to go do any theatricals this year, this week. Where am I going with this? Oh, my God. Uh, we're going to go see The Irishman, uh, the new Martin Scorsese film on Netflix. We're also going to take a look at The Report on Amazon Prime, which is an Adam Driver-led film about uh, uh, witness interrogation after 9-11, right? Yeah, the CIA's uh, torture program. <laughs> yes. Uh, both sound like very lighthearted romps uh i might i don't know about you andy i might try to go see the irishman in a theater but i'm gonna be in houston so if i can get lucky maybe i'll i don't know find it somewhere if i want Mm -hmm. to escape for three hours from the family but otherwise both are available on streaming services netflix and amazon prime respectively check them out watch them and then let's find out if you feel the same way about them as we do next week when we do the show and talk about it Uh, if you enjoyed the show this week uh, let us know in our email at mail at offscriptfilmview.com or comment on Facebook because we got a page over there hit us up on Twitter I'm the one that runs that and we're on Instagram as well and you can tell us anywhere what you thought of the show what you thought of the movies we watched if you think they were lame or cool or whatever Uh, check out our website offscriptfilmview.com a lot of good things happening over there and if there's anything you can do to support the show just subscribe or rate and review you know that's a bonus points i guess maybe we won't focus on that this week maybe next week i'll push people to rate and review but for this week just subscribe that's all you gotta do and thanks for listening to the show of course that's the most important thing uh from all of us at off script the home of bold cinema i'm zach lewis and i'm dr draper thanks for listening